It was around this time last year that I started taking the concept of infertility awareness to heart and started this podcast to help shine a light on the struggles that I'd seen my patients endure. Once I put it out in the world, I began to find there were a lot of others doing the same, and what has been a silent struggle for so long is becoming less so, and that's a wonderful thing. The last full week of April is National Infertility Awareness Week, and over the last year it appears the world is becoming a lot more aware of those who've tried to conceive a child, but find they cannot. The media is alive with stories. Gabrielle Union discussed how she's almost lost count of the eight or nine miscarriages she had. Documentaries like One More Shot and Vegas Baby are giving you a direct view into couples' lives as they struggle. The show Friends from College on Netflix had an entire episode showing the ardor and craziness of IVF injections. Even the Upright Citizens Brigade introduced a taste of improv comedy into the struggle, and it's marvelous. This year's theme for National Infertility Awareness Week is Flip the Script, and it couldn't come at a better time. Never before have women's voices been so amplified to bring about change in how they're treated and perceived. But how do we flip the script? There's more and more evidence that women's complaints, especially of physical and mental symptoms, are more often ignored and given less weight than that of men, and too often the advice that they are given can be downright patronizing. Just look at Serena Williams, who had to beg her doctors to pay attention during childbirth that she thought something was wrong, all because they thought she was just quote-unquote confused. Thinking about all of this made me wonder if there's something inherent in how we talk about medicine, particularly infertility, that could be the problem. I'm not just talking about our conversations, but the actual individual words we use. This made me question where even the word we use now, infertility, comes from, and that led me to today's interview. In March, I had the pleasure of being on a panel with Dr. Robin Jensen, who in 2016 wrote a book called Infertility, Tracing the History of a Transformative Term, and I think it's exactly this history that could hold one of the keys to how we flip the script on infertility. This is Waiting for Babies. I'm Stephen Mavros. Today's interview is about the words we use around infertility throughout history, and who better to talk to than the one who wrote the book on it? I'm Robin Jensen. I'm a professor at the University of Utah in the Department of Communication, and I study uh, reproductive health and uh, rhetorical history largely, so how we talk about different subjects over different periods of time and then how that affects how we talk about those things in the present day. Dr. Jensen's specialty is in rhetoric, which is basically how we use words to be persuasive. So how does one get into the study of rhetoric, you ask? Yeah. So when I was in college, I was on a speech team um, where we did, uh, basically you write speeches and you compete with other people who give speeches. Um, and I just loved it. And in that process, I started to learn about rhetoric and what that largely means is how people persuade each other, um, how they use language to or various symbols to convince other people to, um, you know, agree with them or vote in their direction or that kind of thing. Um, and, and that really appealed to me. I was just really interested in, in how you 
speak to people in ways that are persuasive or not, and how that can then affect people's lived experience. Um, and so after college, I went to grad school and found out that, you know, a lot of people study this and I could, um, you know, I could explore how people are talking and why or why not that's effective. Um, and that's really what I've, what I've been doing ever since. And what drew you to the reproductive world? I know you did a lot of work in sexual education and like how, what, what got you into that, that particular subset of it? So I'm I'm interested in women and women's history. And it turns out that a lot of women's history has to do with reproductive health. Um, and so, uh, you know, I started looking at how people talk about, you know, sex education and how we can encourage people and let people know about, you know, their bodies and how and what resources they have available to them and how they learn about what is um, possible and what's not. And in that process, infertility became really, really central because it's not something that we talk about in sex education. And it seems like something that we should be discussing in terms of, you know, helping people understand what fertility is, when it might happen, how it happens, um, and kind of what they can expect from a broader fertility timeline. It seems to me that that's something that we should be teaching young people so that they just have a sense of what that is. So we don't get to the point where people are all of a sudden trying to have a family and they've never thought about fertility before. And they've never thought about, um, you know, the potential hardships there or the choices they have to make in terms of when and how and what. And, and that affects women's lives in a very real way and men's lives as well. Um, in terms of their professional outlook, in terms of, um, you know, the possibilities they have to them in terms of education, in terms of making choices about what their life will look like. In Infertility, Tracing the History of a Transformative Term, Dr. Jensen tried to go back to see how our society talked about the inability to conceive. So I uh, went as far back as I could, and I only speak English, sadly. So I couldn't uh, look into some of the really far back um, sources. But, you know, around in the 1600s, people, people were using the term barren. Uh, and there was a real understanding that women, in, and it was always about women, <laughs> and often that is the case in, in our historical narrative, that women are connected to the earth and they are natural, and their bodies are soil, um, and there's a real organic metaphor of, um, you know, being fertile, which is ultimately where that fertility metaphor comes, for, comes from. But, the, but to talk about women as barren is really connecting them to nature in a way that it doesn't connect men. A, a lot of times it aligned actually with a religious outlook that if you were quote unquote barren, you were somehow not in God's favor, in that God would grant uh, the blessing of children and allow you to be fruitful and multiply if you did the things that were in line with godliness or morality. And so women who found themselves it, barren um, were often, their main recourse was to pray or to you know try and make themselves right with God. Towards the mid-1800s, medicalization began to happen. Births went from being at home with a midwife to being in the hospital with a physician. Suddenly, barrenness became a medical problem that could be fixed with interventions like surgery. And people like J. Marion Sims, early gynecologist, 
started operating on women um, and trying to appease or fix their uh, reproductive problems via operation. And that really became a medicalized issue. Um, And then you start seeing barrenness being called sterility. And sterility was treated in a hospital, was something that the doctor could, and it was always he, could go in and sort of open a woman up and try to fix what was in there, close her up, and then she would magically have... um, you know, the powers of, of bearing children. And it didn't always work out that way. In fact, uh, the, the record shows that this, the rates of success for J. Marion Sims's interventions were really low. But people started talking about sterility as an issue that could, could be treated in the, in the hospital by a surgeon, and that that was the main way that that people could overcome that kind of issue, even though it wasn't actually all that true. I guess the interesting change there is that to an extent, suddenly it's no longer the woman's fault and it has now become something that can be fixed and it's something physiological. Yeah, that's really interesting because a lot of times we think about medicalization as something that takes, um, you know, takes agency away from individuals. So we're not allowed, we're not able if, if this is the model, there's nothing really that we on our own can do to alter our health outcome. But if we go into a doctor or a surgeon, they will take care of it. Um, and so we don't have as much agency. But the sort of the great thing about that is that women weren't being blamed as much for um, their lack of children, because the understanding was, you know, whatever it is, you can go in and get it fixed and you can't really do anything about it. It's the doctor or the surgeon who can intervene. And so there was a bit of relief, I would imagine, in that it wasn't like, well, you can appeal to God and eventually hope that you'll be in his good graces and be blessed with a child. Um, this is more of the story of, yeah, you just, this stuff happens and we're going to try and take care of it by cutting you open and seeing what's wrong in there. Now, just in case you thought this medicalization was a good turn for the field of sterility as it was known at the time, we should put this surgical intervention in context. For women, this may have taken away some of the blame placed upon them, but absolutely gave them no agency to be anything other than guinea pigs to a mad scientist. Also, this was the mid-1800s, so instead of doing testing on animals or on cadavers, Sims did it on people who had no choice. He um, operated on slave women primarily to begin to try to figure out and experiment essentially with his surgeries. He didn't use anesthesia. Of course, he didn't have consent. Um, And these were just brutal surgeries. Sometimes he would operate up to 70 times on an individual woman, um, which is just the worst possible. I mean, I can't even fathom what that experience was like. So he first did these experiments on slave women, and then he moved into the public sector and charged an inordinate amount of money, um, in many cases, for women, white women, who could pay. Um, and he used anesthesia on them, um, but had pretty low success rates because what he was essentially doing is trying to see... Um, pretty dark times indeed. With the turn of the 20th century, thankfully, things start to change, and science discovers chemistry and the concept of hormones. 
So approximately the 1930s, uh, there's what might be called a rise of, of reproductive endocrinology, where you have uh, doctors who are realizing and, and surgeons and various kinds of scientific clinicians are realizing that uh, something that comes to be called hormones is involved in the reproductive process. And they really start studying that process and, and realizing that both men and women have uh, hormonal, uh, you know, hormonal compositions that must be correct in order for, you know, conception, pregnancy, childbirth to take place. And so you have uh, women and men coming in to try to be tested and treated, often with hormones, usually not with the surgical interventions that had been so uh, prevalent with J. Marion Sims. And men were finally included in a really uh, substantive way um, where they were going in and sort of getting their hormones tested. And, you know, it wasn't a mass migration. Some of them were unwilling to do this, but but they were considered sort of the equation of, of um, sterility uh, and what was coming to be known as fertility and infertility in a way that they hadn't in the past. So, so women were not necessarily seen during this era as the onus of conception in the way that they had been in the past. Do you know off the top of your head when like infertility or fertility was first coined or when that phrase was first used? Yes. So there is a, a doctor named, uh, his last name is Duncan, and he first used the term in the late 1800s, um, but it really didn't get taken up uh, until the early 1900s. And even then, it was fertility that was used and not infertility. You start seeing the inverse of fertility more toward the second half of uh, the 20th century. So it really didn't, it's a relatively new term that people are talking about infertility. Until that time, they're talking largely about sterility. Um, and not today, we, we think of sterility often as just referring to men, but sterility was really across the board. And then we st started making this switch. Now, while this foray into understanding chemistry is going on, another concept is arising about women specifically. I feel like it's best summarized by this quote that Dr. Jensen includes in her book, and it's written by journalist Helena Huntington-Smith in 1934 for Parents Magazine. It says, quote, there is an unmistakable connection between the stress of modern living and sterility. The woman of today, who tries to expand her energies to include a great many other things besides home and children, is under a nervous strain unknown to her grandmother, end quote. What struck me about this is how it still echoes to today. So that's, um, that's a narrative that goes back to the early 1900s and probably late 1800s, and it's called the narrative of energy conservation. And it, it emerges from theories of evolution and um, social Darwinism and um, from Herbert Spencer and various other philosophers who argued that humans are fixed energy systems, meaning that we don't acquire energy. We just have a set amount and we can use it in whatever way we see fit. Um, for women, this was conceptualized as, okay, you have a set amount of energy. You can use it either for your brain or for your reproductive organs. And so if you are using your brain too much, that's fine. But the, the output will be that you um, 
you will not be able to have children or you'll have other reproductive problems because you used your energy, you misused your energy. And ultimately that theory has was proven false relatively early on. But the thing that is important to note is that the narrative of energy conservation even persists today, wherein people will say, you know, you're working too hard, maybe you need to um, give up your professional life or your education and and then you know, your body will figure out what it needs to do. Whereas, you know, you never see that kind of narrative for men. If they're having fertility problems or hardships, you know, say, well, you know, the answer is you've got to quit your job or you're getting too much education. Um, There's really an understanding that women have a, a fixed set of energy and that if they are not, if they're having reproductive problems, it's because they've just used their brain too much and all the energy has gone there. So here's a theory from the 1930s about energy conservation. And if you question whether it still persists today in 2018, where we have a hyper-scientific fertility field, where we have this amazing ability to do things like pre-implantation genetic testing, I give you this one example, bed rest. Anyone who's been through IVF knows all about bed rest. The majority of fertility clinics in the United States, on their discharge papers for women who've been through an embryo transfer, fresh or frozen, is the recommendation of around 24 hours of bed rest. Sometimes it's as much as 72 hours. Often it's combined with the instruction to not lift anything over 10 pounds. For years, I took this as established science. Then I started doing research. I looked for the studies that broke out women lifting 3 pounds versus 10 pounds versus 20 pounds, and who had more success. Women who just went to, you know, go on with their normal lives after transfer, as opposed to those that had their feet up on the couch for a week. You know what I found? Nothing. I couldn't find a single study that in any way shows that bed rest or minimal lifting changes someone's outcomes of success during IVF. There was even one study, though small, that showed the opposite. I happily challenge anyone out there, docs, nurses, anyone who's in the reproductive endocrinology field, please prove me wrong, and I will get down off this soapbox, because then I'll have a lot more respect for how this field treats its patients. Send me a study or even a strong series of case studies showing that this instruction we give women is in any way based in science. Otherwise, it sounds to me like every reproductive endocrinologist in this country is still following the law of energy conservation from the turn of the century that seemingly only exists in women, not men. I'm pretty sure we've disproven, and to me sounds like the most patronizing and intensely demeaning crap I've ever heard. Okay, now that my first rant is over, let's get back to the mid-20th century and the post-war era. Around this time, we saw the rise of psychoanalysis, and it definitely hit the fertility world. A lot of us have heard about Freud. Not many of us have heard about Helene Deutsch, who was a Freudian student and became a psychoanalyst in the United States. She moved um, from Europe, and she really took on the female side of psychoanalysis. You see, Freud thought that the male psyche was the norm, while Deutsch thought that women had their own unique psychology. But then she also concluded, uh, in line with Freud, that women really needed to align with uh, feminine pursuits and ideas and uh, 
you know, if they didn't do that, they were they were psychologically um, abnormal and then would be blocked in their ability to do their female uh, specific quote unquote duties. What her advice usually was, was that they would do things like, again, uh, not pursue higher education, uh, stay out of the workplace, be as feminine as possible. One of those other ideas was um, to adopt, because if you adopt a child, your maternal instincts and processes would be unblocked, and then you would uh, have a child of your own. You could be a child of your own because those uh, you had become more feminine and more, quote unquote, normal. Um, and that is where the adoption myth comes from. It's still a myth today that if you adopt a child, you are then more likely to conceive a child of your own. Um, and there have been numerous um, scientific studies on this to show that, in fact, the rates are exactly the same. Um, but you had a lot of adoptions happening around this time in the mid uh, 20th century uh, with the idea that that would then ignite a woman's own uh, normal psychology and then allow her to conceive. As far as I can tell, this is a myth that was disproved in studies before I was even born. There was even one in 1979 that almost showed the opposite, that people who adopted were less likely to get pregnant, but this was deemed insignificant a difference at the time. Yet I can't tell you how many parties and meetings I've been to where someone will find out I work in the infertility world and say to me, I mean, it must all be stress, right? Look at all those people who get pregnant after they adopt. You can't see it, but even just talking about it, I'm rolling my eyes. But wait, in case you thought that's where the patronizing ends, it gets even worse. One of the ideas was if you were a, a person who had had miscarriages, or even if you were a person who had um, morning sickness or nausea in early or at any point in the pregnancy, the argument was that your body was rejecting the pregnancy, that you had too much of a masculine um, outlook on life. And so your body was trying to reject motherhood. And so if you had miscarriages, it was called an abortion neuroses because your body was um, ejecting the fetus and rejecting it. And it was, it was your psychology that was doing that. And if you were having, um, you know, if you were having vomiting or you were having any kind of nausea in pregnancy, that was also the idea was that it was, it was because you didn't really want a baby that your psychology was, maybe you were telling people you wanted a baby, maybe even thought you wanted a baby, but your body was rejecting it. Um, and so if you could just imagine the kind of blame and and the horrible feelings that you would have, um, if that's what your your physician or the people around you were telling you when you were having those experiences, it's just it's a really sort of a horror to think about that history. Now, as we get closer to modern times, in the 1980s came the concept of the biological clock. It was exacerbated by a French study published in the New England Journal of Medicine that said fertility declined sharply after age 30. Now, even though this study was quickly refuted, suddenly timing of every part of a woman's life became yet one more thing she had to control for, manage, and succeed at. The discourse of fertility really becomes this kind of this discipline discourse of timing yourself and by yourself, it's 
always the woman who's doing that timing because it's her body. Um, and it's the male body too, but sort of the argument is, you know, he's not going through a cycle. He just has to do his role at the appropriate time. Um, and so the woman becomes inherently, you know, just really focused in on timing all these processes correctly and then doing it within the life cycle at the right time. Um, and, and the downside of that, I think, for a lot of people is that it's very difficult to live a full life while you are trying to time these bodily processes just so, and you are going to monitor your body on a day-to-day basis to make this happen. And if it doesn't happen, it, you know, there's always the implication that you're doing it wrong, um, that you're not strict enough or, or your body is wrong or, you know, and that's a real, real difficult place to, to exist. And people exist in that place for long periods of time. And, and it's really devastating on a number of levels. So we're giving them agency, but at the same time, by giving them that agency, we give them a point of failure. Right. And and there's been the argument that this creates something called a fertility mandate where you can never stop. Uh, once you get into sort of the technological intervention stage of fertility, um, until you conceive and birth that biological child, it's really, uh, there's a sort of a compelling uh, force that drives you to keep going no matter the cost to your body, to your um, financial situation, to your partner, to your relationship, to all of these other things beyond the point where it's healthy for you to do that. Um, So now here we are in 2018, one of the most poignant examples of how rhetoric affects us, and in the world of infertility, women especially, is in how medical conditions are named in textbooks and taught to medical students. One of my favorites is the, I think you brought this up in your book too, is this, this juxtaposition between what happens when essentially the flap that comes from the reproductive organ fails. And in a woman, it's called an incompetent cervix. And in a man, it's like retrograde ejaculation. Like you, right. you, for, you don't talk about the incompetence, like sphincter or flap that's happening. No, no. Yeah. And those are, those are discursive rhetorical choices that have been made and that we keep reiterating. I mean, I can't believe we still use these terms, incompetent cervix, but that is the medical term. Um, and there are a bunch of other sort of similar terms that persist in the medical terminology and that then we use on a day-to-day basis. And it's really hard not to um, sort of garner a sense of the moral judgment that seems to be happening um, for something that people have absolutely no control over. I want to give two more examples of this. If a woman is no longer producing eggs when they should be, we call it premature ovarian failure. Note the word failure. Now in men, we call it azoospermia, which basically just means an absence of sperm. We don't say testicular failure or vas deferens failure. We don't say ejaculatory failure. Now for some reason, sperm can appropriately flow through the cervical mucus into the uterus or are found to not survive within the cervical fluid. The medical term for that is either hostile cervical mucus or the uterus itself is hostile. We don't call the sperm weak or dainty or crappy swimmers. We attribute the foul to the woman and call them hostile. Are you sensing a pattern here? Okay, back to Dr. Jensen. On the men's side of things, I I don't think what we want to do is then 
give similar terms to male <laughs> male processes, but we can for sure um, stop using these really odd medical terms that place blame on women's bodies. Is there, do you, as part of what you do in, in your profession, do you feel like there's a, an easy path forward to start that change? There are some people who are doing uh, advocacy work to try and alter and be more aware of that language. I, I don't know that there's an easy path to change. If there was, I would march up to the <laughs> medical school on my campus and say, okay, we're not using this anymore, stop. Um, but I don't, I, you know, that's not how it works. Um, in, in some way we have to il- infiltrate these technical spheres of discourse. And I think what hap- and what I mean by that is, um, a lot of times it is medical education. That's really the spot where um, people are learning these terms without sort of critical analysis and then perpetuating them in the exam rooms. And then from there, they get circulated on a day-to-day basis by people who encounter them who are not doctors and clinicians. Um, So if we could create sort of medical training, medical education that is... um, thoughtful and reflexive of these terms, I think things would change. And that's probably where I would identify um, the most impact in terms of moving forward with that specific issue. Yeah. One of the interesting terms that you use throughout the book, um, and I was curious if this was your kind of pushing us into the next word or phrase that we use was involuntary childlessness. Yeah. is that something you specifically are are pushing as like the next word for infertility or or was it just a good way of phrasing what you were going for? You know, I think others have introduced that term as an alternative. In a lot of ways, it's more descriptive and it and it gets at the situation better than infertility, but it's a mouthful. <laughs> so I don't know, you know, it's hard to say involuntary childlessness. Um, people, I in a lot of ways, I think that communicates that, you know, people are childless, but they don't want to be without getting into, you know, the morality issues or some of the blame that's placed via the the label infertility. I don't know that it's necessarily better or worse, but it's certainly an alternative. Um, and I think the more alternatives we have, the better. Certainly barrenness is awful. I, I think that term, we can all agree, that's not a great term. Um, sterility is, uh, has a lot of sort of negative associations and infertility, you know, I think some people maybe are fine with that term, but it's another option. And I think if we can keep coming up with ideas and ways to describe people's experiences, um, we provide more options for them and more ways of imagining themselves in the process of putting their families and their lives together in ways that make them feel, um, you know, not at fault, which is really important. For the last few months, there's been a tremendous amount of research showing how bad maternal outcomes are for women of color. When you look back at the experiences of Serena Williams after her birth, it's no surprise that the maternal mortality rate of black women is significantly higher than white women. Now, I'm not just talking about 10 or 20%. 
Black women who have complications during pregnancy or delivery are two to three times more likely to die than white women who suffer from the same conditions. Two to three times. It's also no wonder that the concept and rhetoric of infertility around minorities would also be different and possibly be one of the causes of this disparity. You know, the history of infertility is really different for, for instance, minority women, African-American women in particular, because, um, you know, one of the arguments has long been uh, that African-American women and, and women, minority women uh, ha are closer to nature and therefore don't have any problem bearing children, in fact, are hyper fertile. Um, and when they have when they go into childbirth, it hurts them less because they're closer to nature and it's easier for them to do these kind of biological processes. Um, none of this is true, of course. And in fact, our highest rates of infertility among um, populations today are among minority women. So what that means for women, uh, minority women in a really lived uh, embodied way is that it's really difficult for them to think of getting any kind of intervention having to do with fertility um, because they don't think of themselves as a person who would be infertile and their families don't think of that either. Um, and then doctors and providers don't take women who are minorities seriously. Um, and uh, for low-income women, of course, there are, um, you know, they don't have access to the health care that a lot of that upper to middle to upper class people have. And, and of course, there's also the history of uh, African-American women. And I talked about J. Marion Sims, and he was, um, you know, doing his ex fertility experiments essentially on uh, women who had no choice in the matter. And so there's also a distrust of the medical establishment, and, and rightly so, in that, you know, there have been situations where minority women have been mistreated. And in the other side of things, we also have a history in this country of, of sterilizing African-American women without their knowledge, uh, particularly low-income African-American women. Um, so, so that's a really important story uh, that needs to be fleshed out and told in the future. There's one more word that I want to come back to that Dr. Jensen keyed in on during our conversation that I think is crucial to put in context. That's the word choice. If you ask any behavioral economist about the concept or architecture of choice, choices are never made in a bubble. They're not objective. They're not infinite. Decisions are made, and often those decisions are skewed based on how choices are presented to us. This comes right back to infertility, and of course specifically for women, into what choices they really have about living their lives and planning a family. And the interesting thing about the choice terminology is that, you know, in what respect is that also blame oriented? Like I would choose to have a child at a certain point in my life, but we all know that that's not necessarily how things happen, right? Pregnancies happen or don't happen. Maybe you meet a life partner, maybe you don't, maybe you have a professional opportunity at a certain point and that sets things up. And are those choices? Well, in some respects, but in others, they're structurally sort of set out for you. And, and so to say that women chose, I mean, one of the narratives that you hear all the time is like, well, that professional woman waited too long. She's going to wait too long. And then that's just, you know, it's her fault. She should have worked at finding a husband and, and, you know, um, creating a family early on. Whereas you just don't get that narrative with men. 
there was a recent study that came out that I was reading. It talked about how women who have babies between the ages of late 20s and mid 30s, it's it's impossible for that. It's all it's statistically they they end up always making less money than their husbands for the rest of their lives. There's like a sort of a childbearing tax in that way. They just don't make up the wages that they lost during that time. Whereas women who have children earlier than that uh, or later will eventually make up the deficit that they have with their partners or with their male counterpoint. But what you see there is that there are really clear economic hardships that women are having to navigate. um, And those are directly connected to when and how and why they have children. And so, you know, what we see there is that this narrative that it's a woman's fault is really doesn't attend to these kind of structural differences that she's trying to navigate. There's not a clear way through. There's not a right way to do it. Are there are there any other things that prompted the book and that where you want to go from here afterwards now, now that you've been kind of talking about this? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in the future, I'm, I'm planning a, a number of different research projects, one of which is, you know, interviewing current fertility patients and, and talking to them about the discourses that they've encountered. It sounds like you've had a lot of experience on that front. Uh, so maybe we'll have to talk more. Um, and then I'm also doing a historical project on some of the uh, the women who have been central to shaping the field of fertility studies. So I mention a little bit in the book, um, Sophia Kliegman um, and uh, Helly Deutsch and a few others, but I, I really didn't get into as much the sort of fights and, and the ways in which they had to insert themselves um, and how they then were able to change the discourses of fertility, for better or for worse, but often for better, um, to try and and offer more agency for women and, and the inclusion of men and, and different ways of thinking about, uh, about reproductive health. And so one of my arguments is that, you know, we talk about things in ways that are productive because people have tried to break up the discourses that are harmful in the past. Um, and so what did they do? How did they try to do that? And, and what can we garner from that as we move forward? big thank you to Dr. Robin Jensen for sharing her amazing research and passion for this field. We have a link to her book, Infertility, Tracing the History of a Transformative Term, on our website if you want to read more. There's a ton of interesting stories and theories in the book that we didn't get a chance to touch on here. As we come to the end of Infertility Awareness Week, I encourage everyone who's listening to get involved in this conversation. If the words and medical terms we use are part of where stigma lies, it's time we fight to change them. Now, aside from this episode, I put a few thoughts about how we can flip the script on our website at waitingforbabies.com. Another big day in the fertility world is coming up soon, and that's Advocacy Day, where people who've struggled with infertility and work in the fertility field come together and converge on Washington, D.C. 
to have their voices heard and promote legislation to reduce stigma and increase access to care for anyone wanting to bring a child into their lives. If you'd like to attend and get involved, we have a link on our website or go to resolve.org. I'll be there and would love to meet listeners and storm the halls of Congress together with you. Till then, thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Mavros. See you next time. Thank you.